0: morning. So we're continuing in our study in Acts, and particularly looking at Acts chapter 15. Again this week, uh, we're kind of doing the Jerusalem Council Part 2. Last week, we really focused on the nature of the council, what it means that the church came together, and why that was significant, and how important it is for us as a church to come together and contend for the gospel. Um, this week, we're going to look at what the contention was, uh, just the, the nature of the debate. Uh, we're gonna, I'm going to read uh, from Acts 15. Uh, but i'll read the second sort of part the, the the results if you will of the of the council from chapter or from chapter 15 verse 22 to verse 35 so let's let's turn in your bulletins or your bibles to the text there uh, acts chapter 15 verses 22 to 35. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders, with the whole church, to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They sent Judas, called Barsabbas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers, with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we've heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled us with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by word of mouth, for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood, and from what has been strangled, and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you'll do well. Farewell. So. When they were sent off and they went to Antioch, went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. And when they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. And after they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You for the way it points us to Jesus. Uh, Thank You for uh, the encouragement that we find, but Lord, we also thank You for the challenges uh, that we do find in them, that You you challenge us to understand Your Word better. uh, And we ask that You would help us this morning to understand uh, the significance and meaning of the things that we've read. Uh, We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, about 500 years ago or so, uh, Martin Luther famously nailed onto the door of Wittenberg Chapel those 95 theses. Uh, This past fall, we celebrated uh, that anniversary. And for the apostle, or for the apostle, he's not an apostle, for Martin Luther, um, the whole gospel... Hinged on this one idea that salvation was by faith alone. Uh, It got developed over the course of the Reformation, this idea. We came out with this this sort of catchy phrase. I don't think any one uh, uh, person in the Reformation ever said it, but we believe that we are saved by faith alone. Uh, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Uh, that's a sort of catchy Reformation-type phrase. But for Luther, it really did come down to this idea of we are saved by faith and not by faith in works or by works. Uh, and he came to this conclusion for a host of reasons. One of, the, one of the main reasons that he came to this conclusion was because his own life... Uh, throughout it, up to the point of his sort of coming to see the gospel uh, more clearly, his whole life had been about pleasing God, finding God pleased in him through his efforts. And if you know anything about uh, Martin Luther, he went to no small length for that work, uh, he uh, himself became a monk after having a sort of a, a lightning bolt moment literally um, he, he became a monk and he told of it talked of himself as the most monkish of any monk that ever lived he, he did everything that he was told to do, and he was always feeling the weight of the law that it was not enough so fact he would take time out of his schedule uh, one of his mentors was like you know what this is this is too much you need to you need to take a break you need to go to Jeru- uh, to uh, Rome uh, and do a pilgrimage and you'll go and you'll see all the sort of sites of of early Christianity and that will help you come to realize uh, that your faith is is in Christ and and you'll go through the process of, of looking at these uh, um, what do you call them um, um relics and find hope in, in bones of martyrs and in the stairs of Peter and all sorts of things. So he goes to Rome and he climbs up the stairs, the, the, the Peter stairs, uh, and he gets to the top and he says, there's nothing. It means nothing. He still had all the guilt and shame. So he comes back uh, to Germany, and uh, he again has talked to his mentors, trying to get him out of this morose situation. He says, you know what you need to do? You just need to go teach. And so he sends him to uh, the sort of Wittenberg, uh, where he, uh, uh, he ends up becoming a, a, a lecturer in the New Testament, and he's teaching through the book of Romans. And it was there that he came to realize that faith came through Christ, through His grace, that it was free, that it was justified, not on account of any works that He had done, but that He was justified freely by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, And it was that that spurred this great Protestant Reformation, that, that, that sort of opening of His eyes and seeing the freedom of the Gospel. Well, this morning, we're going to be looking at this text where this was at the heart of of the problem. Is it the gospel of free grace through faith? Or is it the gospel of free grace through faith plus obedience to the Jewish rituals and laws? So, this morning, as we wrestle with the, this idea, um, I, I want us to look at it in two parts because there 's actually some really challenging things here. Uh, the first thing I want us to see is that in Christ, you are set free this this gospel of free grace, and then secondly, in Christ, you are set free to love so this idea of what, where do our works come into play what, what it 's not that we 're not to just kind of sin so grace can abound, as Paul would argue that that by no means later on in, in, in the book of Romans there is a call. So those are the two things that I want to look at today. In Christ, you are set free, and in Christ, you are set free to love. The issue under discussion, as I've already described, and the debate at Jerusalem that we kind of unfolded a little bit last week, was whether or not Gentile believers were required to be circumcised and obey the law of Moses. Um, that was that was what was unfolded for us in the first part of chapter 15. And why was this issue big enough that it required the whole church to come together to discuss? Um, this is a truism in the church. Christians disagree. Right? It's truism. We often disagree over doctrine and various practices... And sometimes, to the degree that it is neither feasible nor wise, that we worship together. And no matter how much this unfortunate reality irks us, and I'm the first to say, it irks me. It breaks my heart. When I look at the world and I see believers of different stripes that can't worship together, because I know in glory that will be the reality, we'll come together as one around the throne of God. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every denomination, Amen. come together. It irks me, but no matter how much it irks us, this reality, this side of glory, on account of our own feeble minds and our own stubborn pride, we disagree. Nevertheless, when I look out, I know there's churches that people are gathered in where I have doctrinal differences in, I rejoice because they're brothers and sisters in Christ. My, my differences in degree are minor with many of them. Yet, there are certain doctrines that are so fundamental to the religion that to deny them or to change them cuts at the very heart of our faith. In the post-apostolic period of the church... The early church fathers clarified such issues. We just read earlier in the service a creed, the Nicene Creed, that was born out of one such controversy, one such disagreement, that cut to the very bones of the the religion. How do we defend the Trinity? That was the question. This document, this Nicene Creed, was born out of a controversy that denied the three-in-one nature of God. Other controversies like the two natures of Christ, a similar to the creed of Chalcedon. They came together and declared that to deny these things was heretical, that it that it cut out that it cut to the very heart of belief. And that belief of non-Trinitarian belief was outside the boundary of true Christian religion. Well, I would argue that the debate of the Jerusalem Council was of that nature, was of that type. The argument was over this question about the necessity to follow the law of Moses and in particular circumcision in order to be counted among God's people. At first blush, this may seem of one of those lesser issues, right? After all, does it really matter if someone is circumcised? Couldn't this just be a point of difference between the various local churches akin to worship style or views of baptism or the nature of the second coming, things that we tend to kind of disagree on and separate over? Uh, Could it be one of those things? But Paul, in talking about this issue in his letter to the Galatians, sees the issue as much, much more serious and puts it in these stark terms in chapter 1 of Galatians. He says this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting... Did you hear that word? Deserting Him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. And he goes on to say, not that there is another gospel out there, but there are some who trouble you. Same language here. Don't let anybody trouble you. That was the same language we saw in Acts chapter 15. That there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Anathema. Paul saying, I am calling down a curse on me and even angels if they preach something different than what I'm telling you. As we have said before, so know I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Paul goes on in Galatians chapter 2 what this false gospel that he is describing in detail. And I think it's the same thing that's going on that was under debate in in Acts chapter 15. He says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified false gospel anyone including angels preach against this gospel of grace let them be accursed in other words the issue at hand in Jerusalem council was at the heart of the faith to put it into Reformation language was salvation by grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone or was there something else necessary for us to do to be saved what's the plus Paul viewed these law requirements being imposed on the Gentile believers in Antioch and later in Galatia as cutting out the heart of the gospel. Now, over the course of millennia, the issue of regarding the relationship of works to our salvation has surfaced many times. and In fact, I would say every generation in its way works uh, to figure out what it means. It's the relationship between God's grace and the fact that we are called to obey. And those are hard things. And I don't want to, I'm not trying to dismiss the challenge there at all. There are some challenging things. Um, but none of, no fight of, of this sort was quite as profound uh, as was the Reformation. In recent years, I think it's been popular among some Protestant, even some Protestant Reformed congregation or people to, to question both the extent and the necessity of the Reformation. That's a very like, if you want to be a hip theologian today, you question the extent and, and uh, validity uh, of, the, of the Reformation. Um, was it really worth it all? Isn't our proliferation of denominations proof in the pudding of the disastrous effects? Like that—that that sort of thought question is, is often posed. Hasn't it led to highly introspective and personalized faith away from more objectivized, objective, corporate faith? I'm I'm arguing sort of, sort of people that want to sort of re-examine uh, the Reformation. And, I, and I'll be honest, there are some fair critiques of the Reformation. There are some sad realities that if we look back in history, we can't ignore, can't shove them under the rug. But we still ought to maintain this doctrine that Paul, later Augustine, later Luther, and others fought so passionately for. There is no other hope. There is no other place, no other work other than salvation by grace alone, through Christ alone. There is no Christ plus. And I would even say you all know this, intuitively. You know this because you know the futility of your works. You know this because of the lack of your works. You know this because of the imperfection of your works. You know how hard it is to obey God's Word, how in every turn we seem to find new ways to sin, new ways to break God's law. Or am I the only one? Chasing the law for the purpose of Earning favor feels like Wiley Coyote's pursuit of a roadrunner. Right? What happens? Beep, beep. Wiley runs after it. The the, the roadrunner just sits there and smiles, and the big anvil crashes down on Wiley's head. Isn't that it? Constantly pursuing. Constantly being crushed by the law. The Jerusalem Council concluded that it was not right to put the Gentiles back under the yoke of the law. That even the Jews themselves were unable to keep. That was the argument that was made. And we didn't get to read it all, but that last week we read. There was no way... Jesus came to set us free from the curse and the burden of the law, and He did this by being a curse for us. Paul will say in Galatians chapter 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Friends, we are justified freely by His grace. We are counted righteous. We are declared sons of the Most High. We're no longer burdened under the yoke of trying to prove ourselves to God. He has set us free. Do you believe that? Because that, I think, is at the heart of the gospel. That's why Paul was going to town. Like, he wouldn't let the argument go. Why they had to bring it to Jerusalem. Because this—if you, if you give up this, you've given up everything. Because Christ has set us free. I should know, he says, because I was, as a Pharisee, the, the greatest of all Pharisees. I had done it all, but it wasn't sufficient. Christ alone is the one who saves us. His work, His death, His curse sets us free from the grace of the law. But if you may be wondering, Rob, what about what we just read this morning? You notice I haven't touched much on the text. I've been kind of going back over what we talked about last week. Um, and if you remember, James, uh, he kind of comes to the conclusion, he says, Peter's right, it is wrong for us to put put them back under the burden of the law. But then he says... Uh, nevertheless, uh, you know, here are some things that you ought to abstain from. And we'll see those, we'll look at these in just a minute. Um, there seems to be at least some Jewish legal requirements that are still being imposed. How do we make sense of this? If Paul was going to task about this very issue, and then James comes along and says, Yes, Paul, you're right, but... Doesn't it feel that way a little bit in the text? This letter? We need to discuss this. but we can't lose sight of the fact that in Christ you are set free. So what, what about this strange, strange pronouncement by James? This is my second point, this is my final point. You are set free in Christ to love. First of all, I think it's important to note that this is a really difficult text, Uh, and and I'll I'll be honest, it took me some time to come to some sort of conclusion, and I come to that conclusion tentatively, I think there are other ways of looking at the text, but I, I say that just simply to show you that I think this is a challenging text. At the end of our text last week, James had said, Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. There's that language of trouble. Uh, We shouldn't put them back under the yoke of the law. The weight of having to be circumcised, the weight of obedience uh, to all the, the regulations. But then he says, But... You should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from that, from what has been strangled and from blood. If that isn't an enigma, I'm not sure what is. In Scripture, this is a challenging text. And what's really interesting is that this had been agreed on by the council and the church and a letter had been sent out to the gentile christians stating these th- these things in fact this is such a challenging text that the ancient copyists... Uh, we have, we have you know, copies of Scripture from all over the place in, in, in different ways. And some of the ancient copies actually smooth out the text. They kind of make it immoral. They, they kind of remove the Jewish sort of language of uh, food sacrifice to idols. And they kind of smooth out the text to make it just look like ethical stuff. When it talks about blood, they kind of reinterpret that to mean murder. All right, right, So sexual immorality and murder, of course those things are wrong. But that's actually not what the text says. The text has this very kind of ritualistic stuff in it. Uh, but I'm just showing you how challenging it is. So what is the issue or challenges the text faces us with? The issue at hand is that it seems as though these mostly ceremonial laws, requirements, or legal requirements, that James is still imposing as necessary. Um, uh, He's saying that they they are somewhat required, so how is this not the same thing as circumcision? That's sort of the challenge for us. They seem to fly in the face of everything I said in the first point. (laughs) Uh, before uh, when I said in the first point what Paul says all throughout his letter to the Galatians as well as his letter to the Ephesians as well as his letter to the Romans as well as his letter to the the Corinthians and never mind what Jesus says about salvation being through himself and also how he excoriates all the, the Pharisees right? so how does this fit in to the gospel what do we make of it how do we interpret these requirements? Well, we have some choices. I'll lay out a few choices that I that I think are wrong, but uh, we'll, we'll throw them out there. First, James is simply a legalist. He's a Pharisee and is simply trying to keep some lesser components of Jewish law as a way of compromise. Okay, set that aside for a moment. Second possibilities, possible interpretation is, these are in fact all moral requirements of the law, as evidenced by the inclusion of sexual immorality, and that we should therefore never eat food sacrificed to idols or has, that have been strangled, or that still have blood in them. Okay. So, it's two options that I don't think are the options. Before I suggest a third option, I want to highlight some of the problems with these options. Um, I don't normally go to this extent for, for explanation, but I'm doing it because I think it's such a challenging text. First, James being a legalist. It's important to note that this was a decision that the entire council agreed on, including the Apostle Paul. It's hard to imagine Paul going down without a fight if he had a disagreement. After all, he had said, let me be accursed if I preach a false gospel. Right? Peter had also made a strong plea which James himself agreed with. And the text in no way indicates that this was a legal burden which the Gentile Christians in Antioch were against. To the contrary, the text says that they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Did you catch that at the end of the text? They rejoiced because of the encouragement of the letter they received. I don't think there's any way that we could argue the point from the text that James was just making a compromise position between Pharisee and the gospel. I don't think there is a compromised position. Okay, So I'm going to just set that idea aside. The second argument that these were not just some Jewish ceremonial regulations but were absolutely binding moral requirements is also problematic. It's true that the sexual immorality fits this category. But what about the other things? What about no eating food sacrificed to idols? Paul in his letter to the Corinthians argues that food sacrificed to idols is just food and that eating it is a matter for the conscience. He makes that very argument. For some who struggle with that form of idolatry, it would be sin to eat it. Just as it might be sin for some to drink alcohol who struggle with drunkenness. You can go look this up in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 for a discussion. There's a whole section on this topic. If Paul argues that it is a matter of Christian liberty, he's then directly contradicting the absolute ethical demands here in Acts 15. Do you see the problem? We have have a problem. Two passages then would disagree. I think there's a third way. There's always a third way. The the dialectic, right? Um, These four injunctions were all particular issues surrounding the Greek pagan cultic practices. Food and sex were part and parcel to the idolatrous ways of the pagans uh, and the Greeks. They, they went hand in hand. They were, they were temple prostitutes. And so that this ethical demand of sexual morality kind of goes with these other things, because it's all tied up into one thing, which is idolatrous practice. Now, that's the first thing to point out. There were also things that were extraordinary these were things that were extraordinarily abhorrent to Jews. The Levitical law expressly prohibited these things, and for many in the Jewish Christian community, no matter how free from the burden of the law they were, would have trouble with them. Now, sexual immorality aside, it was an absolute command. I think the other things would have made fellowship coming together very difficult. Therefore, I think that the letter was a pastoral letter to help the communities come together. It wasn't absolute more regulation, with the exception of sexual immorality, but was a situational application of the moral law. Love your neighbor as yourself. They were saying to these Gentile believers, though you may be free from the legal requirements of abstaining from things associated with idolatry, you have a moral requirement to love. These things would have made fellowship almost impossible. It's not to say that maybe in a generation or two these things wouldn't matter as much, but at this point there was a problem. Therefore, I think the letter was pastoral. It was the same sentiment that compelled Paul to say, Don't eat food sacrificed to idols if it causes your weaker brother to stumble. It's love. I think we get a sense of this from the last line of the letter where they said, If you keep yourselves from these things, you will do well. Does that just mean that they'll be good people? No. I think it means they'll do well together. They'll, they'll, they'll do well as a body. that is Greek and Jew, slave and free, male and female, all coming together, as it says in Galatians, right? Coming together for one under the gospel. And, and I think... I think that this is something that we, as Christians, ought to take seriously. How do we use our freedom in Christ? You're free, you're set free, you've been justified, declared righteous. How do you use your freedom? Do we use it to flaunt it? To show how free we are? or do we freely lay those rights down in order to love one another? I want to conclude by thinking about this from another angle. I think this is the way of love. Christ loved us and set us free that we might love Him and in return love one another. That's sort of been my argument. But Paul says in Philippians, Christ did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied Himself. What did He do? all the freedom in the world. He enjoyed divine glory up in in heaven at at the the right hand of His Father. And what does He do? He lets it go. Why? For the sake of love. He comes down to this earth giving up all that He had so that He could lay down His life and die for us. That kind of self-sacrificial love He didn't consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. If God emptied himself, how much more ought we to give up our freedoms and consider others as more significant than ourselves? Brothers and sisters, friends, in Christ you are set free. You are no longer under the yoke of the law. No longer are you striving and failing, but you are justified, declared righteous, called a son of God. But that freedom was meant for love. And love is this, laying down our rights, laying down our freedoms, laying down our lives for one another. You are free. In Christ. Praise God. And you are free in Christ to love. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we are these things are too weighty for us. Uh, Overwhelmed by the gift of your love in Christ, the way you call us righteous, uh, the way you sacrificed yourself and became a curse, came under the law that we might be set free. Lord, overwhelm us with love for you and love for one another, that even in our freedom we would lay ourselves down for one another. We need your help to do these things. So we ask for your help by your Spirit in Christ. We ask these things through Him. We pray in His name. Amen.